Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 40 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick, episode 40. Episode 40, and, and Steve, I gotta say, I'm, I'm a little chilly from my walk outside, because it's a little cold in Austin oh, today. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a freezing 73 degrees here in Austin today. Winter has come. <laughs> winter, winter has come and it's leaving, because it's going to be like 94 again tomorrow. This is true, just in time to get hot again for the second weekend of the ACL Music Festival. So, you know, ACL, Austin City Limits, is a fun festival. I will say, um, I don't even need to go, I can just sit on my back porch. I imagine it was, you live pretty close, I'm yeah. guessing it was pretty loud. Pretty loud. I, I live further than you do, and I I can hear it pretty clearly. Of course, yeah, I can hear the crowd cheering. That's how. Oh, could you? That's how. Oh, that was that was when I walked in. Ah, ah yeah. I thought that was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, I have same to, same difference, same Steve. Difference. Same difference. So it's uh, it's Tuesday, October tenth. It's about twelve forty-five p.m. Central Time. Still, I think a relatively quiet week in the field of national security law and policy. That's right. We'll be a, a bit brief today. We've our main topics are. Uh, First of all, we've got the denial of cert in the Balul uh, Military Commission case. So that'll be number one. Number two, uh, the ACLU habeas petition. On behalf of the John Doe U.S. citizen and combatant. Right. Um, and a, a good-fashioned old-school throwdown between me and Ben Wittes on the subject. Oh, is it, okay, we'll, we'll explore that. And then, uh, and then we'll have brief notes following that uh, first on... Uh, National Security Presidential Memorandum Number Seven, which dropped last Thursday, and maybe isn't collect them all. Yeah, <laughs> well, you can't. Most of them don't get released publicly, but portions, not all, but portions of this one did. We'll explain what it is, and we'll we'll identify what is probably going on here and why it's probably not that big a deal, anything to get excited about from a legal perspective, but nonetheless, why it's worth watching. Uh, and then I think the last substantive topic last week, last Tuesday, um, a. A uh, judge in Ireland actually referred the Max Schrems uh, sort of data privacy dispute back to the Court of Justice of the European Union. We talked about this case a little bit before, Bobby. It's a case I'm involved in as an expert witness, so there's only so much I can say, but obviously it has some relevance to the cross-border data universe, to how U.S. tech firms are able to operate in Europe. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and there'll, it'll tie in in an indirect way to the Section 702 renewal debate. So we'll close with that on substance. And then in our, our triviality segment, for those who stick around, we're going to review the playoffs thus far. We yeah, how, my, my, my Diamondbacks pick for the World Series is looking awesome Ooh, right now. Yeah, that, <laughs> not so great. However, my, my enthusiasm for the Astros has been borne out pretty well. We'll see. So far. Big, big, big game, big game, big game's coming up in the ACS. We'll see who they're playing. And we'll review that. We'll review the trailer for The Last Jedi that premiered last night. What, in is, a, that, what is that penguin thing? Uh, <laughs> it's the new Jar Jar Binks, my friend. How'd that work out? Uh, exactly. And, and uh, I don't know if you saw it when it actually dropped during halftime of the Vikings-Bears game. Uh, you mean the the three to two game at halftime? Was, that it was. Yeah, it was a great baseball game. I mean, the 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 Twins and the the Twins and the White Sox were at three to two at halftime. It was unbelievable. And then um, you know maybe a, a time for a quick book review at the end. I want to comment on Steve Russian's memoir, which is a real really fun read. And I'm going to talk about how very very excited I am to read Ron Chernow's new book, which is out today, a biography not of Alexander Hamilton but of Ulysses S. Grant. I'm going to wait and just see the musical. It's going to be great. <laughs> Although I feel like it'd be it'd be so derivative were they to just do like a hip hop musical. So, like a oh, heavy, I think heavy metal because of all the, the you know the not combat. not like country. Oh, a country. Actually, you know what? You're right. U.S. Grant is absolutely a, a kind of a, a country themed. I mean, think so, of think of a whole sort of numbers. That's a credit mobile. 
You know what? I actually <laughs> credit Movier, nice. All right, I'm inspired. I'm gonna go work on the libretto. But first, before I do that, let's talk national security law. Yeah. So this morning, around 9:30 Eastern, the Supreme Court issued its orders list from its conference from last Friday. It's actually a pretty quiet orders list. Let me just one little note of relevance to our listeners: no action in the government cert petition in the Microsoft cross-border data case, um, which is actually a pretty powerful sign that the court may be soon to grant certiorari in that case. Um, lately, the Supreme Court, when it has a case with a high profile and doesn't act on it at its next order list, its practice has been to relist the case once and then grant. So it's quite possible we'll see a grant in the Microsoft case next Monday. So just this is actually, I didn't know that was going to come up. And I actually think it's very interesting. It, am I right that we don't actually have a circuit split? What we nope. have is a second circuit ruling that goes from Microsoft and then a whole smattering, I think up to seven now, of lower court decisions of various stripes uh, going the other way. In both state and federal court. Just, just, to, just to give folks a, a sort of refresher on what the issue is. Um, under the Stored Communications Act, the government's allowed to basically request the equivalent of a warrant to get data off of servers from particular tech firms if they can make a certain showing. The government asked for emails held by Microsoft on behalf of one of its customers. Microsoft's response was that the emails were on a server in Ireland um, and that they therefore were outside the jurisdiction of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, the court where the government sought the order. Um, the district court disagreed. Um, the Second Circuit reversed and said, that's correct. Um, we don't like it. We don't think this is the way the law ought to be. But the statute does not allow a district court to compel the production of data outside of its jurisdiction, even if the owner of the data is in the jurisdiction and can access it in the jurisdiction. And, and of course, the, the contrary view is it's rather like a habeas jurisdiction, yep. right? You know, you've got you've got the ultimate custodian of a prisoner who may be at Guantanamo, but you're here in the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, Mr. Secretary of Defense, and therefore we can we can since you can control the fate of that prisoner elsewhere. Yep. It's sort of the same idea. If you're sitting there in Seattle and you can access from your desk these files and you can call them up, then why the can't you cooperate with the yeah, court? Yeah, the order? fact that you've decided for the interest of your business to to physically locate those files right at this moment, temporarily perhaps on a server in, in Ireland is of no moment. Anyway, so I think there's no question this is a big case. I yep. think the fact that the government has sought cert makes it all but a certainty that cert will be yeah, granted. That's right. Um, for those who are interested, I will just refer you to my former colleague, Jen Daskal's fantastic work on the subject, including her Yale Law Journal article on the unterritoriality of data. Great title. Well done. Well done, Jen. I, I had something to do with the title. Oh, oh so you say, <laughs> now that I've complimented well, it. Well, what would well, you have said had I insulted it? Nothing. <laughs> so. right. um, but the, clearly the bigger news out of this morning's uh, orders list was the denial of certiorari um, with no noted dissents. Justice Gorsuch apparently did not participate um, in Al-Balul. We've talked about Al-Balul. This is the case about whether the Guantanamo military commissions constitutionally may exercise jurisdiction over purely domestic offenses like conspiracy material support. Um, the D.C. Circuit didn't really say yes in general, right? They fractured in Al-Balul's case, which I think is a large part of why the court denied cert. Um, but Bobby, we've talked before about how this is the dominant yeah. jurisdictional question hanging over the commission. And, and it's law of the circuit now, or I mean, it was law of the circuit, don't Well, you is think? it? I mean, what's, what, so what four is Four votes, four, four plus out of one nine. plus one against three, and then two recusals. But here's the problem. I mean, the problem is, is that, so the, the what, what we call Al-Balul three, right, the October 2016 en banc decision, there were nine judges participating. Only four of those nine under de novo review 
um, said that it was permissible for the military commission to try to try conspiracy. So that's persuasive authority, obviously. Well, it's, so it's the plurality. It's a it's an en banc plurality is yep. what we've got. And yep. that's and that's the last word as far as the district court's concerned. Oh, no doubt. And well, then there's no district court. Right, anyway, no district but, court. Well, it's the last word as far as the commission. That's right. Uh, I mean, the CMCR, the Court of Military Commission Review, and the tri- right. Clearly, the commissions will now just continue trying these offenses right. until and unless another defendant comes along who can raise a proper objection. But I mean, and then start the whole thing over. And the question is, will ultimately we get a different ruling out of A, the circuit, right. or B, the Supreme Court? Will they actually end up taking the case? Now, I think it would be crazy if the upshot of all this is many years from now, we finally get the court actually to engage on the merits of this question, having passed on it now, knowing that this is going to be a big deal and that the, the fate of the commissions to some extent partially turned on this. I'm going to say more, more than to some extent, right? Yeah, I mean, right. You know, um, Five of the eight convictions to date have solely been on domestic offenses. All eight cases have included some domestic offenses. All three of the current cases include some domestic offenses. Right. I mean, this is this just to be clear, like the, the significance of the ruling is insofar as this turns out to be the last word, this does give a substantial boost to the utility of the commissions for the types of cases the government's going to want to periodically try to try in that forum. I completely agree with that. I would just say without resolving the cloud of jurisdictional uncertainty that I think continues to hover over the commissions. I mean, until and unless there's at least a binding D.C. Circuit decision, to say nothing of a Supreme Court decision, tackling this question de novo and resolving it in the government's favor. So you think the plurality, the en banc plurality, doesn't, doesn't carry that much weight? I mean, I think it carries weight going down, right, like vertically. Yeah. Like it'll clearly it'll bind, you know, the CMCR will follow it, the military will follow it. Won't it bind a future panel? I don't, I don't think so, right? Because the, the future panel is bound by whatever result commanded a majority of the judges on the D.C. Circuit, which was, in this case, um, that Balul's, case, Balul's conviction specifically was not subject to challenge. Yeah. So bottom line, it's a thumb on the scale, but a sufficiently bold panel of the D.C. Circuit in the future could decide to exploit the numbers and say, well, that was, you know, four, just, four judges of the D.C. Circuit. Wasn't but, a majority. But wasn't a majority. Therefore, we're going to give it due weight, and here's our different result. Now, I mean, but let's be clear. I mean, but, so, so I want to say a word about Nashiri, right, which the Supreme Court has not yet acted on. Um, assuming the Supreme Court denies certiorari in Nashiri, and the reason why that's relevant is because the issue in Nashiri is the timing of when you can challenge the jurisdiction right. of the military commission. If they deny certain Nashiri, that means that the Balul question, right, in Kuwait domestic offenses, yeah. can't come back to the Supreme Court until the appeal of a conviction. Right. Which, I mean, let's be honest, is no less than five years away. Yeah, that's that's so far. So it'll be years and years if Nashiri is cert denied or if it certs granted, but then it comes out that same way. And and. By the time we get there, Bobby, there are going to be new judges on the D.C. Circuit, and there are going to be new justices. And so, you know, I just don't know how we can say with any surety, surety with any yeah. conviction, um, no pun intended, that right that that today's cert denial is a is a harbinger of how those future courts might rule when the question returns and is properly presented. Court of- of course, you know, by that by that same logic, it's almost the same result, even if there have been five or six votes or even nine votes. Yeah, it's right. just you know, that's just making the observation that when the when the lineup of the courts change, suddenly their sense of whether they were right before is in play. So I want to say one quick word about Nashiri, but let me also say the fact that they denied Balul makes it that much 
more remarkable to me that they granted my stupid little cases. <laughs> um, right? Well, it just shows you that there's no accounting for taste. Come on. Seriously. I mean, listen, I, as I said on the podcast before, like, I think what makes my cases interesting is actually not their connection to Guantanamo, right. but their significance broader to the sort of role of the military and civil government. Well, I, think, I think that doesn't surprise me at all that they would actually decide, no, we're, we're fine with the result in Balul. And, and indeed, that may reflect that they are indeed fine with it on the merits. Who knows? Um, but that they see the larger significance of your case. Maybe. I mean, I, I, so I will I will sort of quibble with their final the result in Balul. Well, I'm not saying we know it, but it's possible. So, so listen, I, I have no doubt that there are four justices, right, who have no problem with the Judge Kavanaugh, con- four-judge concurring opinion, right, for the en banc D.C. Circuit. I think that's... Both, yeah. bit, both based on who's still well, there from but Hamdan. But there's one justice we aren't so sure about. But there's about. one justice we're not so sure about. And he's the one who wrote separately in Hamdan, right, Justice Kennedy, to talk yeah. about conspiracy. And we now know, almost certainly, he won't be there if and when this case ever returns. Unless, right, unless Nashiri is granted and reversed, right? So, yeah. so Nashiri, just to remind folks, right, Nashiri is challenged on whether he can be tried for pre-9-11 offenses. But the posture is very different. His is a pretrial challenge. And the whole fight in the Supreme Court is whether his pretrial challenge can be litigated on the merits or whether it has to be postponed until he's presumably convicted and appealed. And back to Bobby's point from before, here's another example. Do we really want to spend 10 years, millions of dollars and all this energy to have a capital conviction of a terrorism suspect that has this huge jurisdictional vulnerability versus resolving it now? And not only will there be that direct cost, but I do think that Look, the, the takeaway, if, if I'm someone in a position on the Hill or in the Pentagon or elsewhere thinking about just you know how useful, how functional can the commissions be going forward, this is a really big boost. This is a sign that, you know what, the most important charge I need to be able to bring is conspiracy. And, and it's at, still at available. Worst case scenario, five to 10 years from now, this may come up again, but with a thumb on the scale from the en banc circuit yep. as a plurality saying, yeah, yep. you can do this. I um, completely agree. Yeah. All right. So, 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 you know, all this to say, come on, Supreme Court. Yeah, but they did, but and yet they didn't. We'll and there, see what happens. And, and no dissents. No, that's right. Okay, so with, who knows? We might see some renewed emphasis on the commissions as a result of this. Do you Maybe. Think I might? mean, I think, I think that'll have a lot to do. I, I think that will that will tell us a lot about you know the Trump administration's posture. Like, were they waiting for these cases to be resolved by the Supreme Court, or were they just did they just not have the cases yet? Yeah. Um, one last note on Nashiri, just to not lose the thread. Nashiri was in the Supreme Court's technical parlance rescheduled not relisted, right? So with the Microsoft case, that's what's called a relist. And these days, a relist is a pretty powerful sign of interest in a cert grant. Rescheduled is different. Rescheduled means before the justices even met. Right. Someone took it off the calendar because they wanted more time to study it. It's like a timeout. It's like a timeout, whereas relist is like a, oh, it's like overtime. Nice inside baseball there. Thank you. Or or not, since overtime doesn't happen. I was going to say, well, maybe we should make that inside uh, basketball. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, so in the Shuri, I just, I, folks should not read too much into the fact that the it was rescheduled. That could just mean one justice wanted more time with it. I still think the odds are decent that they grant in the Shuri because those are procedural questions that have broader significance. Mm-hmm. And they're teed up in a way that's a better vehicle, I would say, than with Balul. That's right. There aren't the case-specific vehicle problems. Um, on the flip side, I would have thought that if there was enough interest in these cases collectively, that it would have been a package deal. And so, you know, we'll yeah. see what happens, but I'm not optimistic. All right. So there, there's our military commission's update. Okay. Speaking of military detention commissions right. and stuff. It, and as I always say in class, you know, be sure to distinguish in your mind very cleanly between military commissions, where the government's actually prosecuting before a military body, and military detention, where the whole point is we're not prosecuting you, we're 
holding you for without the dura- trial. Without trial, because we're holding you by analogy or direct application of some or other of the law of armed conflicts. Uh, non-criminal preventive detention models. All right. So the the most interesting, obviously, there are still the 41 detainees at Guantanamo, um, of whom 31, I think, are in that category of detention, not trial, right? Um, but of course, the the real headline lately has been John Doe citizen. John who, who Doe is still John Doe. Right. So we do not we we continue to I think it's our fourth week on or third week or fourth week, Steve. I think that's our fourth. Fourth week noting this topic. Uh, the name remains not in public. We, we've not seen any sign of it yet. Um, since last week, what has happened? What has happened is that the ACLU has taken the initiative of putting itself forward as the next friend of John Doe. Uh, so it's not a claim that they have any authorization from a family member or otherwise. It's just that no one knows. Somebody's got to come forward, and they're putting themselves forward to bring the habeas corpus petition seeking his release and or uh, prohibition against transfer and or, you know, this, that, and the other. We'll get into the details in a moment. Steve, the petition is against uh, Secretary Mattis. So it's ACLU, originally styled John Doe v. Mattis, now restyled ACLU v. Mattis. Um, Before we get to the merits, the threshold question is, does the ACLU get to be the next friend? How would this normally unfold as a matter of procedure? So take the Hamdi case, right? I mean, Hamdi is a really good example because Hamdi started out, Bobby, in a very similar posture where Hamdi was being held in incommunicado detention, first at Guantanamo, and then by the time I think the habeas was filed, he was being held in a Navy brig in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, Hamdi's petition was filed by his father. Um, and it was filed by his father as his next friend. Um, next friend standing is the idea that where circumstances prevent the actual plaintiff from signing the relevant documents, right. from you know having access to the court, someone who clearly is entitled to act on his interests, practically if not legally, should be allowed to proceed on his behalf. Is there a, a an established hierarchy of relatives, friends, and acquaintances that sort of can one-up one another and be in this sort of... Uh, you know, de facto decision maker. So, I mean, usually usually you don't see a lot of fighting over that because usually it's not like a fight for whether it's his father or brother who brings right. the habeas petition. You, you can imagine like a, a person who's in a coma or something presenting exactly this sort of question. Yes, but then you have, that's a separate question about state law and yep. powers of attorney right. and durable medical right. directives right. and all that stuff. Right, and all the rest. Um, we, need, we need our colleague Sean Williams to come straighten us out on Sean, that. Sean, help us. Um, You're our only hope. Here, oh, thank you for the Star Wars joke. <laughs> Just warmed him up. Um, here, I think the question is a much more practical one about the habeas statute, right? Which is, if you really have someone in incommunicado detention, the case law clearly recognizes that family members can proceed on their behalf. What if you have a John Doe detainee where it's not clear who his family members are? And so the million-dollar question for Judge Tanya Chutkin, the D.C. district judge who has been assigned this, whatever you want, this dumpster fire, um, is, you know, when— <laughs> She's been assigned this final exam question. Yes, well, there's— <laughs> pay attention, federal court students of my spring 2018 semester. <laughs> um, the real question for Judge Chutkin is when no one can be a next friend, doesn't someone have to be right. a next friend? If, so if, if there's no obvious candidate, can anyone be the candidate? Or rather, by the, way, the point, can any plausible uh, institutional representative? That's the title of today's episode. What's that? With next friends like these. <laughs> well, actually, that, that's kind of insulting to our friends at the ACLU, right? That, uh, you know, that, that, that implies that who needs enemies? Listen, the ACLU is doing the, I mean, Hannah Shamsi and John Hafitz and all the other lawyers and Art Spitzer, who are the three, I think, principal lawyers on this, all whom I know well and admire, um, are doing the right thing. Oh, I'm teasing you. I know you think that. But, but, <laughs> but I just, you know, 
what other than the fact that we like the ACLU and they and they fight for our civil liberties, what makes them John Doe's next friend? Right. So that you know, and so the question is, well, you, no one else is going to have a particularly better claim if no one ever knows who it is. So it becomes like a situation where you're trying to figure out which firm amongst many gets to lead the multi-district litigation. Is this particular set of lawyers particularly capable? And it's like third-party standing. You bring those equitable considerations to bear on: Do they have the experience? Do they have the organic ties? Listen, if, so there's, if, there's, any question, if there's any question about competence, right, and oh, yeah. skill, these yeah. are the right people. But also in terms of connection to the issue from past litigation, it it's plausible to me. If if someone gets to be a next friend without an actual tie, they're as plausible as anyone. Here's an interesting question. It is possible, Steve, that the family of John Doe does actually know. Yep. It's possible. I'm not saying it's likely. I suspect it's not the case, but it is possible. So my thought is that if I were the judge, um, what I would want to see, is I would want to issue an order to show cause to the government mm -hmm. why the ACLU should not be granted a next friend status. If it's the case that the government can show that, in fact, the family knows and, and, they are, chose and, not to and they've chosen not to pursue this, there should be a sealed way they can make that case and put it into it right there. If the government can't make that representation because, in fact, the family does not know and is not cooperating or what have you, and I suspect that probably is right, then what are they going to say other than, well, they don't have authorization from John Doe? Which can't be the final answer. Well, so, so this is the million-dollar question, right? Which is when the rubber hits the road, um, which principle gives a U.S. citizen's constitutional right to judicial review via habeas corpus or Article Three standing? No, and, and I think it's it's got to be that there has to, at some point in time, you have to allow somebody to be the next. So friend. I have I have a solution. What's that? To, I, I can cut the Gordian knot. All right. Um, what Judge Chuckin should do is she should take a page from Judge John Bates okay. from the Abu Ali case back okay. in 2004 and order limited jurisdictional discovery for the purpose of determining standing. All right. So, so in other words, there could be some kind of inquiry put through to John Doe saying, by the way, do you want the ACLU to be your lawyer? Or just to the government, right? That the government, that just like the government has, like the, the limited jurisdictional discovery can be for the purpose of determining standing and can be to do the exact thing you suggested, which is to find out whether his family is aware that he's in custody and whether his family has any interest in challenging his custody. Right. You can do that under seal. There's no reason that why you have to reveal the name of either the detainee or the family. But if the judge comes back with a sealed declaration from the family yeah. that says, we are comfortable with the ACLU right. on behalf, we're done. So whether the vehicle is in order to show cause or, or jurisdictional order discovery. for jurisdictional discovery. You end up in the same place. Yeah. And the, the trickiness, there, there's a difference. So my original model had simply been, you put the question out there and give the government the chance to show they've already got that approval. And if they don't, then the ACLU gets to go, because why not them? Somebody's got to do it. And maybe not right away, but but by some point in time, they get to go. Your model is, actually, no. If they don't, If the family doesn't already know, let's have them informed. Now, that'll get interesting if the government's claiming, and I don't know why they'd fight on this hill, because it doesn't. there's no sign here this is some high-value detainee. Right. Maybe I'm wrong about that. No, no, there's no indication but, of that. But if it's not the case, if this really is sort of a, a line fighter, and by the way, um, you know, what little we know about the guy is that um, we're told he was born in the United States. It's actually, to me, it's just like Yasser Hamdi. Mm -hmm. Born in the U.S., he has birthright citizenship, but born and raised elsewhere. Uh, family was from elsewhere, just was in the United States when he was born. And then ends up, you know, alleged to be a fighter with the foreign force captured abroad by our proxy forces who turned him over to us. It's, it lines up just exactly like Hamdi. Um, either way, I think that this, it, this, the filing of the petition is mounting pressure on the administration 
to pull the trigger one way or the other on this. And they can buy time simply by playing out the litigation that you and I are describing, right. which could take weeks, months. maybe months I mean, to if they, unfold. I mean, listen, if, so, so, so here's my, my nightmare scenario. So, you know, folks, listeners may be aware that over the last two days, um, my old sparring partner, Ben Wittes, and I have been fighting about this on Lawfare. And, 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 and applauding. We're applauding you guys having something to disagree with. It's really it's, – I, I will say I think it's refreshing. Um, but um, Ben's basic position, and, and I hope – I know he listens, and so I hope he will think I am fairly characterizing it, um, is that, you know, as compared to everything else going on, this is not that big a deal and that the courts will take care of it eventually. I, I, I think if Ben were here – and Ben, let me speak for you there – I think he would say that – this is not that big a deal because we have these various elements of systematic pushback right. to police right. it. Veto gates. Right. And, and, and listen, that's, that is true in the abstract. But as I tried to remind Ben in my reply, which is on Lawfare this morning, um, in Jose Padilla's case, right, he was in military detention for 1,307 days and never got a definitive legal determination of whether that military detention was lawful. But do you think that if Jose Padilla II, literally the same case, arose, so he's arrested in Chicago, he's in yeah. military detention, it's clear who he is, right. uh, is there any doubt that it would he would have a habeas petition resolved on the merits way before that 1,000-day so, so, run? So Padilla took 1,300 days because it went up to the Supreme Court on procedural issue, went back right. down, went back up on the merits, exactly. at which point it was mooted. Imagine if you know, the government decides to take to the Supreme Court the question of whether, as part of the suspension clause, a detainee has a right to have his identity revealed and to have access to counsel. It'll certainly take a while, but I don't think for a second it would drag on as much as some of the stuff that had to get worked out in the first instance. Fine, so imagine the... it takes half as long. So a U.S. citizen sits in military detention for 653 days. I don't think it'd be that long. I, I just, I, I don't I'm have... more optimistic than you on this. And so is Ben, clearly. And I guess my response is, if history is any guide, you know, Courts are there, yes. Courts will exert pressure to ensure that this doesn't turn into some mass roundup of Americans. 100%, that's true. But in the individual case, when there's a novel procedural question, as there was in Padilla, right, if the government really wants to take these cases all the way up and to sort of fight for every inch of real estate, it's not clear to me that the courts are going to be in any hurry even if they ultimately rule against the government, to push back. One of the points Ben was making that I think was I found persuasive was that there's a reason to think we're not likely to see some sort of scorched earth litigation defense that, such as could occur, as you're describing. Granted, it could occur. Um, in that there's no reason to think this was some situation the government was looking to have happen. There's, there's no indication that it's the administration's policy to try to use this tool. This sort of fell upon them, and it's clear from the reporting at least that the DOD would love – for this guy to be transferred to federal prosecutors' yes, custody, yes, yes. and they're just having trouble getting you know, the, the evidence not, listen, together. Listen, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you or Ben for a second that this is not the beginning of a policy shift, right? This is, this is a fortuitous case that literally walked in off the street. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, you're right about that. That's fine. Um, and and so this is why I think part of Ben's reaction is completely defensible. I just do not. I mean, here I am, right? I am usually the one who is the super defender of the courts, and Ben is usually the one who is more critical of their role. I do not have the faith that Ben has um, that they're going to act as expeditiously to solve this problem because I'm worried that there are doctr the government has plausible enough doctrinal arguments 
to stretch this out if they want to. They could. I suspect they won't, but they may need to buy some time because according to the articles, you know, since we last spoke, right. I, I published something boldly predicting within a week he'll be transferred <laughs> to prosecution. Hey, I had the Diamondbacks in the World Series. That's true. I wish I could switch with you. So I was obviously wrong about the one-week deal. Uh, and the reason why I was wrong, it is confirmed that as I speculated in our conversation last week, indeed, it is proving hard to find admissible evidence, which is not that surprising when you consider what seems to have occurred, which is some SDF uh, Kurdish Syrian Kurdish forces uh, took the surrender of this guy and turned him over. And who knows where those witnesses to the capture are now? Which, are, oh, they by e- the way, are they even alive? Which, oh, by the way, were the facts of Hamdi. Yeah, exactly. So again, Where we were super worried about why, like, why we were so confident that he was actually subject to military detention. So the Hamdi analogy continues to seem especially a good fit here, which is why if they did decide to hold him, I think the AUMF issue is the bigger issue, not the Non-Detention Act issue, except insofar as you've argued these things are connected. Now, all, all we'll this, see. I this, think All this is just to say, like, you know, the elephant in the room is the incommunicado piece of this. Right, like, and I mean, I mean the the John Doe piece of this, right? Yeah. The, the the fact that no one knows who this guy is. Right. Although, when so elephant in the room suggests like we're, we're kind of missing the key thing. No, no, but the elephant That's in the room for the, the court. The, yeah. Like, no, because the habeas petition ultimately will be a if if John Doe stays in military custody and yeah. if the court reaches the habeas petition on the merits. Yeah, the they're going to review be, it. The yeah. fight's going to be what we talked about. Like, you know, does the AOF cover ISIS? Does the non-detention act have anything yeah. to say about and that? And do we have enough evidence to prove by preponderance totally. of the evidence that this guy actually was an ISIS fighter? All of the above, right? But which, by the way, we've never at the Supreme Court, we've never actually had. A Hamdi hearing, right? Right. The- Although, don't you th- I, actually? This is an interesting point. I think that it, even though Hamdi, you know, had set up, there's supposed to be this due process in, informed yep. hearing. Then he gets transferred away, gets released. Um, don't you think they would basically take lock, stock, and barrel the pr- process, law, and evidentiary rules of the Gitmo habeas process and say that's what this guy's going to get? Except for the, I, I don't know because you know there's enough. There are enough D.C. Circuit judges saying that, in fact, those rules were not – I mean, Judge Silberman has a concurrence in the S-Mail case where he says all of the – you know, everyone keeps pointing to Hamdi, but Hamdi was about due process. These guys don't have due process, so why should we have the same procedural rules? But but that would only – you know, so process, due process would only ramp up from there. Right? No, that's what I'm saying. So, so to me, the D.C. Circuit rules would be a baseline. Uh, yeah. I, and then you have to – and then I think you'd have a really serious argument that a U.S. citizen was entitled to more. I don't think so. I think that the I think that the non-citizens got a load of process. Mm-hmm. There's no particular reason to say that the citizens going to get more like a, a clear and convincing evidence. Test. So this is this, I think this is one of the this might this might be one of the long-standing Bobby Steve disagreements. Indeed, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, I think we all have to acknowledge that when the when the courts, if and when confronted with this question of what what burden of proof should I imp- impose here, what rules of evidence. What, on what source of law are they drawing well, to I, yield this other than their own intuitions about justice? No, no doubt. But so, so this is why this is, I mean, for all the sort of concern I have about the plight of this one John Doe U.S. citizen, this is why this has been fun because this is what our field used to look like. <laughs> right. Like, we, used to have these, like, we used to have like these serious debates about how you should cash out military detention, about, you know, what the burden of proof should be, about, right. you know, what the time of judicial review should be. Like, this is what this field used to be about. So we've hopped in our hot tub time machine, and we've gone back to 2009. And, and I have to say, like, I mean, I miss it. I mean, this is like, you know... Well, it's a lot more pleasant to argue about this sort of stuff than it is to... Ponder the fate of the republic in terms right, of our start, political right, process and starting a nuclear war on Twitter. <laughs> so um, should we should we leave for now the story of ACLU Madison? It, it's clearly coming back. I mean, right. So so keep your eyes peeled on ACLU Foundation versus Madison, the DC District Court. One, one last thing, I'm, I'm reminded. I'm, I'm picturing Marty if he were here saying saying, guys, this is going to go away by transfer to the person's 
other country of citizenship. Now, this is a key fact, right? It turns out this isn't this isn't like uh, a person from Texas who's gone over there. He's a U.S. citizen, and that's the full story. He's either coming back or he's staying there. Apparently, this is like Hamdi, where the he's person almost certainly is a dual citizen who, in fact, lived his whole life in some other overseas location. Maybe maybe Saudi Arabia, maybe Jordan. Right? Who knows, right? Somewhere could else, be, could like be anything, although right. I feel like if it... Well, we don't know, right? Yeah. But it's interesting that we're not already hearing talk about how this person's going to be turned over. It, the, the lack of trial balloons in the media indicating something about how, don't worry, this person's going to be sent back to his, his actual country of residence raises an interesting question. Is it possible he's from some location where that's not really an option? Like Yemen? Well, I don't know. Like, what would that location be? Could it, you know, is, is Libya or Somalia or Yemen or any of these places of instability so unstable that we actually felt we couldn't transfer some low-level fighter? There's another possibility that they're from a country that we actually have pretty good relations with that has said absolutely no, no way. <laughs> he doesn't want to. He doesn't over want our dead to, body. Right. He's he it could be could be somebody maybe from Europe or something. Right. I mean, imagine if he's British. Yeah. Right? Um, although although I, I would say that for the most part, the European states have been pretty aggressive about trying to get their own nationals back to them. That's right. If When they have sufficient evidence. Remember, our material support statutes are pretty broad compared to some of theirs. Yeah, it's interesting to see. But I, I think that, to me, the, the, the issue that people have been missing is that one. What country might this person be from and I, what I, will that indicate? Listen, I agree. But I just want to say, and, and you know, I... Oh, how about if he's Syrian? Exactly. That, that would actually well, probably... Then we go back to the last week's episode in our discussion of transfer to torture, right? Because I think that's when you're going to have real concerns about sending them back to Assad. Well, the, the, yeah. I guess I guess I was assuming that that wasn't even just an option, quite apart from the, the risk of torture concern. Just Because of the lack of diplomatic relations. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, who are you going to turn him over but, to? Back I, to the SDF? I just want to go back. So, so you've been saying this for a couple of weeks. Marty's been saying this for a couple of weeks. I think Ben's post says this quite explicitly. It's yes, all of these are quite possible as endgame scenarios, but we are now just about a month in and none of this has happened. And with every day that goes by, I really do think this becomes a bigger story because, yes, while all the scenarios might be legally in the cards, you know, what happens if seven months goes by? If sure. Five years goes by. It's, it's a spectrum and each day is, is another gram on the scale. I do think that it's more likely than not at this point, based on what has been said and has been reported by Spencer Ackman and Charlie Savage and others. Um, that the administration is not trying to break some new ground and open up a new pathway to detention here, that this this is a situation that's going slowly where they do not, they don't want judicial involvement, but they're just trying to buy time to build up that case to figure out how to, how to deal Listen, with this I completely guy. agree. Every indication is that this is not some Trumpian directive to like test the waters. Right. But the longer this goes on without a solution presenting itself, the longer they're going to test the waters anyway. Now, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, if this guy won't stand for the flag before the kickoff, uh, that's a different that's deal. A different, yes, that's yes. a different deal. You know what? You know what I really don't like. I don't like it when people make a political statement out of the national anthem. Do you? Do you mean? Are you referring to players or officials here? Or vice presidents? Like, I mean, you know, imagine if someone staged a publicity stunt around showing his, you know, views about the national anthem. Wouldn't that be the kind of thing that would lead the president to call him a son of a bitch? Oh, I don't know. These are, these are harsh words for my, my gentle ears. Um, so our third topic, we were going to talk about the national security. Moving right along. President, speaking of presidential stuff, the National Security Presidential Memorandum Number 7 was released to the public on Thursday last week. What is this? What should you understand this to be? Every president has a uh, – they, they vary the titles, so the acronyms end up kind of different from – president to president, but you get these series of orders that often are in the nature of uh, reorganizing in various ways or giving direction to the national security establishment on questions of policy, about um, 
identifying which entity has lead or executive agency uh, responsibility for different programs. This order that was released basically appears to call for a collaboration amongst uh, the intelligence community, the Defense Department, Homeland Security, FBI, I mean, uh, DOJ and others in, in developing what you might describe as an enterprise-wide or executive branch-wide uh, information sharing architecture uh, for sharing of, and there's some particular terms of art here, but I'm just going to paraphrase, um, individual identifying information. So think biometrics, but also think about you know factual allegations and derogatory information. This person's associated with that. They did this. Creating that uh, common database in a way that's accessible and, and more shareable is all about sh sharing the dots amongst different agencies. And then critically, the, the memorandum also mentions making it as uh, efficient as possible for processing with uh, basically you know machine learning or algorithmic analysis. Um, obviously, this already exists and is done extensively, certainly in certain pockets of national security threat information. Uh, most obviously, I think, are the categories of counterterrorism information and uh, cybersecurity information. You have the National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC, very much all about the business of trying to pull the dots together and, and pushing it out to who needs to know it. Um, and similarly, you have a similar fusion concept with NKIC, the Oh, gosh, can I do the acronym? This is uh, the National Cybersecurity uh, and Critical Infrastructure. Anyways, NCIC, NCCIC uh, within the Department of Homeland Security playing a similar role for the integration of cyber threat indicator information, pushing it out to the private sector, pushing it out to government agencies. Um, I take it, Steve, that this new memorandum is not actually calling for some, you know, bold new sort of total information awareness type program, but rather saying that there are a lot of other categories as well beyond those two, and some some of which may already be the the home of uh, existing fusion center type efforts, and we need to have this uh, sort of disaggregated information sharing and fusion model across all categories of threat information. Now. We don't know what categories the president or the White House had in mind because there's an annex that seems to be classified. It wasn't released that identifies the current list of categories. The memorandum goes out of its way to say that in crafting the whatever new systems need to be crafted, uh, the, the crafters need to take account of all relevant laws and policies and other constraints and have that built into the system. Um, my takeaway, Steve... Nothing to get excited about. This sounds like it could well be a sort of a good government system. But, of course, the devil's in the details in terms of who's going to get access to what buckets of information. And, and there you see a little connection to the current controversy surrounding Section 702 renewal and the topic of FBI access to 702 data. By extension, it's easy to imagine that any new efforts to create common information spaces that various agencies can tap into may well contain any number of landmines in terms of agencies acquiring access to information that was brought about in a way or captured in a way that was supposed to be more constrained or maybe should be more constrained in terms of who gets access. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's just part of the larger question of, you know, it's October 10th, Section 702 expires on December 31st. Might be a good idea to have that big conversation soon about these authorities and how we're going to reauthorize them. Well, there are a couple of bills already now circulating from the Judiciary Committees. The Intelligence Committees apparently are working on their own bills. And so sooner rather than later, I think, Steve, we both agree we don't want to sink a ton of time on the podcast into exploring something until we get a firmer idea of what the lead vehicles really are. I think that's right. But, you know, um, 
you know, it's, it's worth sort of adding as a footnote here that we mentioned at the top the the Irish court's decision last week in Schrems. Yes, let's come to that. Right. So so folks may be familiar, a couple of years ago, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union in the Max Schrems case basically put the kibosh on what was then called Bobby Safe Harbor, right, which mm-hmm. was the, the data sharing directive that was supposed to allow U.S. tech firms in particular to engage in cross-border data sharing between the U.S. and the EU without running afoul of the more restrictive European privacy laws. Um, after Safe Harbor was basically nixed, the uh, firms went back and started adopting these things called SCC, Standard Contractual Clauses. And then the U.S. government and a bunch of the European uh, uh, partners um, signed on to this thing called Privacy Shield. Well, Schrems went back to court in Ireland, um, basically contesting whether the Standard Contractual Clauses also um, create an unnecessary risk of violating European data privacy laws um, in English, right? Whether Facebook can't actually transfer data back and forth between the U.S. and Europe because the data in the U.S. is too much at risk of interception from U.S. foreign intelligence uh, authorities. Um, And the Irish court last week basically made what's called a referral, where they sent the case back to the Court of Justice of the European Union. This is not a merits ruling, but there's a lot of language in the court's ruling, Bobby, that suggests that the standard contractual clauses may not have solved the problem, um, and that could call into question privacy shield. This all matters because if Privacy Shield goes down, right, if the U.S. companies are not, in fact, able to transfer data between the U.S. and Europe, that'll have enormous ramifications. But from a monetary perspective, from a sort of data sharing perspective, I'm sure it will provoke new legislation in both Congress and European capitals. I I think that uh, the bottom line is that if the standard contractual agreements are found to be adequate in and of themselves, then Privacy Shield itself is not going to get a look in this procedural posture. If, on the other hand, the court thinks the contractual clauses are not adequate, then they are going to have to come to grips with Privacy Shield in this context, or at least they might. Is that right, Steve? I think that's right. And then, now I should say, I mean, I've, I, so I've testified as an expert for Facebook in this case, so I'm a little biased and there's only so much I can say. I just think this is worth watching because even though the 702 debate is going to be what gets all the attention in the U.S., the real lever for reform might be if the tech firms Right, and not the civil liberties and privacy groups, go to Congress and say, hey, guys, like it's going to cost us billions of dollars if we don't close some of the gaps that are perceived to exist in U.S. surveillance authorities. And I guess the 702 renewal debate will certainly run its course before the uh, this next round of European litigation gets underway. So we'll sort of know that part of it's going to be baked in. And if there are reforms, you can bet that the case for upholding you know, the entire arrangement will look stronger, perhaps, with the reforms. The question is, at what price? I mean, obviously, you know, you want you want to bolster uh, the co- the commercial aspect, but you don't want to throw 702's functionality out along the way. So the the, the this is just yet another way of looking at the uh, collateral consequences of the 702 reform debate. That's right. Okay. Well, I think we've wrapped up on our substantive topics. Let's let's be non-substantive. Let's talk about a, a few things. Uh, first of all, baseball. Sorry about your Diamondbacks. Uh, They're not my Diamondbacks, but you well, they, you, ha- you rented them for purposes of your prediction. I mean, I wasn't going to rent the Mets. <laughs> well, that was a good choice. Then. Um, I will say though that you know, with luck, the Nationals are going to live up to my hope of never winning a playoff series. It's it's definitely looking possible. Trending they, in the right they direction. Looked awfully weak. Um, I gotta say, I was I was thrilled with how Houston played. It was yeah. it was really exciting to watch Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa showing what they could do on, on a broader uh, public stage. And boy, those two came out of the gates hot. Of course, Justin Verlander making his first relief appearance uh, was pretty fun. It was great seeing him and and Sale going at it. Love seeing Houston, which has had such a 
terrible, terrible go of it recently as a city, getting this thing to cheer for, especially because I'm not, I'm in no mood to watch people cheering for the Rockets. So I'm going to put all my, <laughs> all my love into the Astros instead. I, know, so I, th- I think the Astros are a very good team. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, you know, they're going to get a chance to line up their pitching now yeah. in ways that whoever comes out of the Indians, the Yankees series, please, please, Indians, come on, man. That has been a fun series, I got to say. It's been a fun series, but uh, the Yankees, oh. Uh. So I do think that Houston's got a, a big advantage here. If the Yankees come out, then Houston gets home field and their pitching's lined up right. and, and relatively rested. On the other hand, you know, whichever team, Indians or Yankees, comes out of that crucible, we'll have a lot of good momentum and enthusiasm from, from weathering hey, that listen, storm. momentum is only as good as the next day's starting pitcher. That's exactly right. Um, and the National League, you know, I think the Dodgers and, you know, I assume the Cubs, um, that's, you know, It'll be an interesting series. I just I can't get that excited about that. Yeah, you know it's funny. I used to think of myself as much more National League focused, but but this year the American League's just got some really compelling storylines. Especially lines. if the Indians beat the Yankees. Yeah, I, I, and Indians Astros would be a lot uh, of fun. Is a lot of fun. Um, so also we had the the trailer for the yeah. uh, what the Last Jedi. Yeah, you know. Um, so the, the only reason to watch that pathetic excuse for a football game that was it was awful. the Mitchell Trubisky experience. The Norse division can be tough to watch sometimes. <laughs> um, although I, I although did, the score was about the same. Yeah, exactly. Well, I thought Trubisky. Okay, first on Trubisky, and you know, there were a couple of plays where you, you see why there's enthusiasm when he took off and ran and got that big first down. I, you could really see something. It was like watching Sam Ellinger running for uh, UT Longhorns. Now, um, this whole bit that went down where they marched a bunch of people in the Stormtrooper out, outfits out on the field, they show the trailer, and I guess marched the Stormtroopers out, and then had one of the one of the uh, Monday Night Football guys was standing there with the guy in a Stormtrooper outfit, clearly just mocking the entire cross-promotion that had been foisted on them. And I thought to myself, you know, if I was the exec who, who arranged that marketing, I'd be pretty mad because that, that reporter was just like laughing out loud at the whole process. Yeah, is what it is. Steve is holding up his hands, and, and you know, what do you expect? What, what are you going to do? Okay, about the trailer. Listen, if, if, if we're, if we're going to have a talk about things ESPN has screwed up lately, yeah, then you're no, going to get me to kidding. start talking about Jamel Hill, and this is not going to end well for anybody. That's a different podcast. So, about the trailer. If <laughs> Wait, you got, so, screwing up the cross-marketing is 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 within our bailiwick, but Jamel Hill's not. No, but see, we're now we're talking trivialities that don't matter. The Jamel uh-huh. Hill deal, that's serious. Yeah, that's that's serious. politics. All right. Um, now, don't listen in if you don't want our speculation about spoilers, but I felt like the, the trailer for Last Jedi was, de- it, maybe they're tricking us, but they're certainly trying to reveal what looked like all the major plot twists of the second film, right? Or at least some of the major plot twists. Right. They're, they're, they're showing you that, that Ray's going to have trouble, uh, well, there's going to be trouble getting uh, Luke to yep. go along with the training. Well, and, and partly because apparently we're going to have some flashbacks to the last time Luke tried to train a Jedi, which didn't go so well, see Kylo Ren. Right, and so we're going to we're gonna get a little backstory. It all feels a little formulaic, i got to say, and getting getting it previewed to formulaic? us. Formulaic? Wait, so so yeah. like like a movie that's a reboot that just rehashes all the major plot exactly. elements of the original? And I, and I don't know about you, but I was hoping that they felt like they had to do that in the first one just to sort of wash away the sins of and the now prequels. They're gonna come, and now they're going to... Yeah, I was, hoping, I was hoping for more of a clever original story because you know what I loved Rogue One so much Rogue One was fantastic Rogue One was fantastic and I'm afraid it's going to be hard. I never thought this would be true it's going to be hard for this one to, to compete Rogue with one. Rogue One I, I mean I think that's right I think part of, but here's the thing part of why Rogue One is so fantastic is because it was able to sort of be outside the canon yeah right and yeah. so there, there was no canon to bind it yeah, here, you know, they should feel free going forward, but instead we're getting all the hallmarks of, you know, oh, also, you know, is Kylo Ren going to, is he going to intentionally destroy the the starship that has his right. has his mom on board? Right. So, anyway, um, listen, I'll go see it. 
Yeah, oh, certainly. <laughs> so so shall we all. Um, on a on a different pop culture note, I just finished reading a really cool book by uh, former Sports Illustrated uh, writer uh, Steve Russian. Oh. This book, uh, uh, what is it called? Stingray. Shoot, I'm forgetting the name now. Uh, Stingray Memories, right? Is a memoir of his childhood growing up in Minnesota in the '70s. If you grew up in the '70s, if you're Gen X. This is a really interesting read in terms of just kind of reliving what it was like to be a kid on Saturday morning watching the cartoons and Schoolhouse Rock, uh, eating all the ridiculous cereals that we all used to pound sugar with, and just about every other thing from pop rocks, you know, to to the sports icons of those years, some of the music. Um, Just about every page had some reference that to a Gen Xer like me, I thought, Yep, nope, we did that too. Growing up in San Antonio apparently was not nearly so different from uh, growing up in, in Bloomington, Minnesota, as one might have thought. Uh, just a lot more hockey for him. I couldn't relate to any of that. But otherwise, definitely a fun read. Uh, it, it's a nice family story as well about parents and children. Um, so big thumbs up to Steve Russian. Uh, I'll just say, my, my, my favorite, I, I love Steve Russian's writing. I think he's fantastic. My favorite fact that people may not know about Steve Russian um, is that he's married to Rebecca Lobo. Yeah, that's pretty great. All right. Anyway, so with that triviality, and then oh, one last note I want to plug, um, even though I haven't read it yet, Ron Chernow's Grant is going to be fantastic. Uh, I can't wait to read that too. All right. So on that note, this actually blissfully abbreviated version of episode four of the National Kill Law Podcast, I think we're done. Adios. Stay safe out there.